There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, July 16th. I'm Karen Brown. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi's Board of Education eyes 100% in-person learning this fall. Then, a new ruling in the prolonged court battle over Mississippi's mental health care system. And Thomas Moore remembers his brother, who was murdered by the Ku Klux Klan. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Yesterday, the Mississippi Board of Education rolled out a set of policies that mandate schools to prepare for year-round in-person learning in 2021 and 2022. The guidelines still allow for virtual learning options. However, they remove the requirement that all districts offer remote instruction. Notably, the board's new rules also completely eliminate one mode of learning. Paula Vanderford of the Department of Education explains. When we resumed instruction after the pandemic, we, uh, the MDE offered a uh, traditional, a hybrid, or a virtual option for students. But these policies that have been approved under a temporary rule eliminate the hybrid option. We had a number of districts express concern that they wanted to continue to have the option to, for the hybrid option, so while they were benchmark testing or statewide testing or had other things going on in their district that they could assign half of their population, for example, for virtual learning and have half the population um, resume in person for testing. But these policies do eliminate that hybrid option. Erica Jones is president of the Mississippi Association of Educators. She tells MPB's Ashley Norwood teachers are relieved to return to normalcy. We are really excited to hear this information come from MDE. Uh, We ask that as our students and our schools return to a normal schedule, that they do so safely. And by that, I'd be following the CDC guidelines as well as medical professionals here in our state. Our students have missed an opportunity for some different learning opportunities over the last couple of months. And so we know now is the time that they are 
ready and willing to go back in person to resume all of those wonderful things that they experience inside of our classrooms. I know, as you just stated, you know, that, that you're encouraging districts to, to do so safely. What are some of the the things that will be critical for districts to consider um, as they're, you know, creating these plans for a safe return? So, yes, yeah, some of the things for our districts to consider is, uh, especially when you think about our younger elementary students, is the way that they get to and from school, what would their schedules look like? What will the cafeteria schedule look like as far as spacing? I know some recent guidance has suggested that we continue to try to keep our students three feet apart. So as our students are entering into the classrooms and our school settings, those are going to be some things that our districts have to consider. What are they going to do about hand washing? What are they going to do about keeping our classrooms clean and safe? And so uh, will students have to wear masks? Is that a, a district-wide thing, or how how is masks being determined? The information that I received and read recently is that it's going to be uh, according to the guidance of the CDC, uh, whether or not the students are having to wear masks. And if I'm not mistaken, the last uh, thing that I saw, that they would recommend for uh, students to continue to wear the mask in a large school setting, especially when you think about vaccinations occurring at age 12 and above. Many of our elementary students do not fit those vaccination requirements. And, you know, that might be a concern for, you know, some educators in the younger uh, populations in in elementary schools um, because of that, uh, the lack of eligibility for for vaccines. Uh, How concerned are you about, you know, some maybe high risk or vulnerable uh, educators in those settings? I am concerned with our high-risk educators, and that's why it's going to be so important as we start to return to school in the fall that our school districts continue to keep not only our students safe, but our educators safe. And they can do that by putting those guidelines in place, you know, just as we did in the past for those students who returned this past school year, having those hand-washing stations readily available, having masks in place, having sanitation, hand sanitizer, and things of that nature available for our students and our educators. You kind of talked about this earlier, but I just want to mention it again. Um, You know, just kind of expound more on what what students have been through since this pandemic, you know, having to go uh, into virtual learning and not being in person and then sometimes hybrid, you know, just, I guess how how concerned you are about uh, some of those missed opportunities, but now trying to get back into the classroom. As a second grade teacher, I know well how important it is that our students are face-to-face. Yes, virtual learning can occur, but there are so many different opportunities that our students miss when they are not face-to-face. For example, just interacting with their classmates and their teachers, uh, not only that, um, utilizing the materials that are there available at the schools for them. It is so important that we return face-to-face in order for our students and our educators to grasp everything that's available to them. Is there anything I didn't ask you, Erica, that you think is important to add? 
Uh, one thing I would like to add as we start to uh, return to school in the fall is that I continue to ask that our community give our educators and our students grace as they return, because for many of our students, they have not been inside of a school setting since March of 2020. So this is going to be a different experience for them being out so long. So as we're entering back into our classroom settings, for everyone just to come together and do what's needed for our students and our educators. Coming up, a federal judge orders changes to Mississippi's embattled mental health care system. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Federal Judge Carlton Reeves has issued a ruling on remediation in a high-profile court battle over the future of Mississippi's mental health care system. The decision comes in the wake of a successful lawsuit brought against the state by the Department of Justice, which alleged the Mississippi Department of Mental Health provided substandard options for care. The ruling allows Mississippi to retain autonomy over its mental health care system, but mandates the installation of an outside monitor to ensure that new goals are met. Sitaniel Wimbley is director of the Mississippi chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. She tells MPB's Kobe Vance that court-ordered accountability represents welcome and needed change within the state. For us, what I'm looking at is the case is saying that the state is not supplying proven adequate services in the community for adults with mental illness. And dealing with some of the individuals who are in the communities looking for the support and receiving the calls in reference to the support, it is known that um, there are issues. There are, especially in the rural areas. Of course, we're in Mississippi, and we have to acknowledge that we are in a rural area. We may not have funding for different things in different areas. We have to take all of that into account when we say adequate services. So there are things like transportation, insurance coverage, quality of care, All of those things have to be looked at, and I think over the past 11 years, these are things that have been addressed in the court case. Why do you think it's important to have that accountability? With any system, you need checks and balances. In order to make sure that the system is working, the people who need the the support, so that those people are able to get the support, those people know where to go, who to talk to, and once they get there, they're able to get adequate care from qualified individuals. And what about behind the scenes for, you know, uh, mental health professionals who are uh, trying to do their jobs? Do you think this is going to have any changes for them? I think it will, um, especially even with COVID. There has been a lot of talk about mental health. There has been a kind of the the band-aid ripped off when it comes to mental health. We see that it's very prevalent now. Individuals are coming out more and saying that they're struggling with their mental health and they need help. It's not as taboo as it was. So what happens with that is kind of a domino effect. If healthcare providers start to hear and receive more questions about mental health, they start to make sure that they have adequate information to share with individuals who are asking. So what do you think mental health in Mississippi can look like as we go forward from here, both from this case, but also, as you just mentioned, the, the pandemic? I think mental health will be something that we need to keep in the forefront. It is something that's prevalent 
in the state. One in five people live with a mental illness. And many of those people are are living with a serious mental illness. 431,000 adults in the state of Mississippi have a mental health condition. That's statistically. That's known. So those 431,000 individuals now will have the opportunity to get the help that they need. They will now be able to look and get access to the help a little bit faster. And that's my hope. And that's as an organization, that's what NAMI wants to do. Make sure everyone understands where to get the help, how to get the help, and then look at the barriers for individuals who are trying to get the help, such as transportation or insurance coverage or the quality of care when they do show up to get the help. What What do you think is going to be the significance of this going forward for like access to information about mental health in Mississippi and, um, and ensuring accountability um, in places that the Department of Mental Health has not been transparent about previously? So I feel the data being collected will automatically share the information of where the services are needed more. It will give the Department of Mental Health the opportunity to understand which programs need to be revamped, which programs will need to be implemented. They will have opportunities to learn what's working, what's not working, and make changes as needed. From my experience, everyone that works in the mental health arena in the state all want the same thing. We want to help the individuals who are struggling. It's just the avenue that we take to get there may be a little bit different. And, you know, this case has been going on for 11 years now. In that time, the Department of Mental Health has made a few changes here and there to address some of the issues that have come up in this case. Um, But, you know, ultimately now we're here. We have this ruling. What are your thoughts on seeing at least for what could be the beginning of the end for this case? I'm happy that we're at a point where it's 11 years. I mean, that's a long time for a case to go on. So at this point, we have the ruling. And like Judge Reed said, these are real families, real people, real people involved in the struggle. So for 11 years, our state as a whole has been in a struggle to supply adequate mental health care. I hope this is the beginning of the end, but as we all know, change takes time. It takes funding. It takes coordination. It takes a lot of effort, and that is just something that we know. So I think this is a great step in the right direction, being that we recognize that the system is not working for everyone. And at this point, We have a ruling that we have to do something, and even though there have been some steps made, and some of those are very positive steps, maybe this will help us to secure a way to make a few more steps, and maybe a little bit faster. Because we can only do what we're able to do with the funding that's available and um, the services that are available. So these are things that we have to look at and work together. We often operate in silos. And we have a lot of resources in the state that go underutilized. And now we will have a new 988 system coming in July of 2022, and that's a national effort. So 988 will be parallel to 911, but if you're seeing someone and you realize they're having a mental health crisis, then you can call 988. That directly correlates with what's going on here because now those individuals who are struggling will have somewhere to call and get to the systems that they are needing. The attorney general's office could still appeal for this um, ruling that's out right now. 
I guess, one, do you think that state would approach something like that? And if so, would that just be another delay on what do you think is inevitable to have this returned? At this point, I can't state whether they would or wouldn't. I just know that at the end of it, the people who are, are struggling really need the services and they really need access to adequate care. Either way. <laughs> well, is there anything else that we might not have touched on that you think is significant that Mississippians should know about, whether about this specifically or mental health uh, in Mississippi? Because mental health in Mississippi is now a topic that's openly talked about, that we need to make sure that individuals are aware of the resources, such as NAMI Mississippi and the things that we offer. There are different nonprofit organizations around the state that are here, and we're willing to help individuals. And oftentimes we have programs at no charge to those individuals. And it's just we have to make sure that the individuals who need our services are able to get our services and have access to the services. And that's what we as an organization are working on, and I know other organizations parallel to us are doing the same. Satanya Wembley is Executive Director of NAMI Mississippi. And Satanya, thank you for talking with us today. Anytime, and thank you for asking. Coming up, a new chapter in Thomas More's long fight for justice. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Charles Moore and Henry D. were teenagers in 1964 when they were kidnapped by members of the Ku Klux Klan, tortured, and then drowned in the Mississippi River. The bodies of the two black boys weren't found until months later during the search for James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner. In the decades since, Thomas Moore, Charles's brother, fought relentlessly to bring police and media attention to the case. In 2007, he broke through. A new investigation into the murders drew attention from a Canadian documentary filmmaker and ultimately led to the conviction of a Klansman named James Ford Seal. This week, Thomas visited Meadville for the unveiling of a highway marker in honor of the slain young men. The return to Mississippi brought back memories of the first days of his brother's disappearance. What angered me was the fact that, you know, I didn't know, and I'm talking about over the years, I didn't know where to go, I didn't know who, what, when, where, how, or why this kind of thing happened. When they told me that she originally said that he had ran away from home, which I knew was a lie. And then when it came out, after they found the remains, that that his feet was tied together by some bailing wire. And that's what that's what kicked the anger. That's, that's when we realized that it was some thing that went on to kill them. Yeah. Did you know immediately that it was likely your brother had been murdered by the Klan? No. I was in Texas when, they, when on the... Uh, the official found my brother bought on the 12th. I mean, he seen the body on the 12th of July. On the 13th, Henry D. bought a floated up partial body. I was in Texas listening, playing pools in the day room in the army, and the news came on that they had found two bodies. I didn't worry about it because at that point we didn't know anything. And then the commander called me in that night and asked me, do I have a brother that was put in missing? And I told him, yes. Yeah. And he said they have identified 
wanted to remain as your brother. And that's when I got on the plane the next day and flew into Nashville. You've been on a long journey to find justice for your brother. Yeah. Well, it took how long? 50 years before you started looking for that justice? Well, no, I really started in 98 when I wrote a letter to the district attorney in, in, in this part of the country asking him we look at the case because I had promised Mama by her request that I would not do anything about it. But I, later on, I found out that she was threatened by the same people. Now, I was in the Army and Soldier 24 years after his death. Then I wrote to the district attorney asking him could he look in the case. He, in turn, wrote to the United States attorney, which name was Tyler at the time. I think that was his name. And he played around with it and said, well, we got to dismiss the case because we don't have no evidence. And then it kind of wrestled on and wrestled on. And then 2005, David Ridden from Canada got familiar with the story. And he came to, to Colorado Springs and picked me up. And we came to Mississippi in July 2005 and did that documentary in Mississippi Cold Case. And that, that uncovered a lot of their previous evidence. That's when we met. United States Attorney Don Lampton. And he agreed after he, had been, after he had been identified that the two of us served in the same unit getting ready to go to Iraq. I didn't know him then. But uh, he took the case and pursued it all into the trial in May of 2007, in which James Ford Seal was convicted. It seems interesting that it took a, a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker from Canada, to tell this story about a U.S. story in the South. And he got you involved. He wanted your involvement. He wanted you to be an active part of the investigation. Is that right? That's right. Well, you know, he does podcasts. If you ever get a chance, listen to the one, season three, somebody knows something. James Ford Seal was convicted in 2007. That's 43 years after the killings of these two teenagers. Yeah. What did that mean to you that he was convicted and actually died four years later in prison? Well, during that time, Charles Marcusville was the guy that testified, his partner that testified against Seal, asked me in the court that Friday, would I forgive him? And I wrestled with that all night. And the next morning, I, I, you know, I was beginning to read the Bible. The next morning, I read what it said, how many times should I forgive my brother. Jesus Christ said, not seven times seven, but seven to seven times seven. And I went back the next day and I gave him forgiveness. I gave him forgiveness. Yeah. But no forgiveness for James Ford Seal? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, both I, of them. I, I wrestled with that for a couple days and I forgave him. Well, now, 57 and, uh, years later, this week, a marker is dedicated. Does this bring closure to all of these well, years? My theme of it is 57 years of running kind of like a relay and how God plays people in my path to help me go a little bit further. And it started off with Mama running until she passed away. And then I met David Ridgeon in 2005. He carried me a little bit further. And then we met Don Lampton in 2005. He took me a little bit further. And I'm sitting this here with my friend, Shannon from California, that started this process of building, uh, getting this memorial bill. So my theme is running 57 years for justice. 
and the day is found recognition. Because when they when they found that body of Charles Moore and Henry D, the news people said because they were not Cheney, uh Goodman, and Swanner, that they were the wrong body. And I'm here to tell them today that no, they wasn't. Do you feel a sense of peace, or do you think you'll feel peace when this is all over? Oh, yeah, I'm at peace. Oh, yeah, I'm at peace. Because, again, this is the final thing for that part of the story. Uh, because every time we come in here, David and I, there was always a shallow attitude that people don't know what happened. But then after the trial, that's when my healing began. That's when the transformation of Thomas Moore began. We wish you the very best, and we thank you so much for sharing what this day means okay. and the life of your brother, Thomas Moore. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, and if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.